You know, in every era, in every era of history, scolding of busybodies has been a burden. Busybodies are always a burden. But in our age, with our connectivity and our cameras, scolding interference has, has developed into a cultural passion, hasn't it? For example, not long ago, there was a, a member of our church, a man was in a grocery store, and he looked over, and there was a little girl who appeared to be lost. She had gotten absorbed in the produce, and he's pretty sure he saw the rest of her family move on. So, so this guy, not wanting to cause any problems, but wanting to help, he, um, he looked up over some displays, and he spotted the likely family and realized, yeah, that's probably it. So he said to the little girl, hey, kiddo, I think you're family has moved on. And the girl looked up absolutely panicked. And he just said, just come this way. And she followed him and he went in front and, and he got her over to her mom. And the mom did what every good mother does. She cried and loved on and threatened to kill her kid all in the same breath. And, um, and she, of course, thanked our member, like, thank you so much. All great, right? <laughs> just wait. Here's the denouement. He goes back to his cart and has a real shock waiting there. Because there is another mother there waiting for him. And he told me that she was actually trembling with rage. And she said to him, I saw that whole thing. You never talk to a child. Don't ever talk to anyone else's child. You, you man. Isn't that horrible? That's just awful. But is that kind of scolding busybodiness, is it, uh, is it rare? Let's do this. Raise your hand if you have ever seen someone intervene like that, someone who tried to turn a good deed into a guilt session. Raise your hand if you've ever seen that happen. Yeah, I'll raise my hand because whenever this hits the radio and podcast, I will receive letters from people telling me how that guy did wrong. I'm certain that I will receive correction. It, it's so sad. We have, we have developed into a people that, that have this weird kind of reverse legalism where any good deed deserves to be punished. Um, if you do something good, you really live with this feeling that you're just waiting for the hammer to fall. Captured, Leo Cullum captured this very nicely in a recent cartoon. A guy goes to heaven, and at the gate he is told, um, I see here several good deeds that seem to have gone unpunished. That, that's funny. And that kind of dark humor fits our days. But again, this is nothing new. Turn to your Bible. Open your Bible to Mark, second book of your New Testament. Mark, go to chapter 14. You're going to find the same kind of situation. Mark 14, verses 1 and 2. We'll start there. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. Uh, let's stop there. In our notes, you'll see that I borrowed the backward phrase for our headline, uh, no good deed goes unpunished. If you got a bulletin, when you came in, open it up. There's notes in the middle there you can use as we study. If you're online, you can, uh, you can find them through your host. Just ask. They'll show you where they are. Jesus. Jesus has healed and unified Israel. He has blessed Gentiles. He has proven to be the promised Messiah. So what do the busybodies in Jerusalem want to do? Kill him. It's the ultimate expression of good being punished. Uh, so the religious leaders develop a Trojan horse plan. L look up here. Uh, dolos is the Greek word that we translate cunning way. It's a really, really old term. Uh, in fact, it's one of the oldest of the Greek words. It's used way, way back. It's used uh, for bait that you use when you're fishing. The most famous use of dolos, and this was known by 
everyone who spoke or read Greek, which was everyone at that time. The most famous use was in Homer's story, the Iliad, and the story of the Trojan horse, right? You, you know the story that Greeks are trying to find a way to sneak into the Trojan camp. They can't get the gates of the city open. They can't win this war. So they build this huge horse or rabbit if you're a Monty Python fan. And they, and they hide soldiers in there. And then when they get inside the gate at night, they break out, they go, they open the gate, and they take over the city. Um, you ever thought about why we call it a Trojan horse? I mean, it was, for millennia, we've called it that. It's made by Greeks who should never be trusted when uh, bearing gifts. Anyway, two days prior to Passover and Unleavened Bread Feast, the scribes and the head priests are searching for some kind of bait, some kind of Trojan horse they can sneak in to his camp to take, out, take down Jesus. Notice their plan is to take care of all this after the crowds leave from Passover. Um, I'm going to give you a little timeline here. I think it really helps see the, the great ironies here. Passover was the annual festival, the great Jewish feast, held on the Jewish month of Nisan, uh, 1415. We, we say it that way because of the way we date things. In, in Jewish reckoning, a day goes from sunset to sunset, not from midnight to midnight like it does in Roman and in our thinking. Uh, so Nisan, 1415, was the great celebration of Passover. The, the highlight of Passover was the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, who, which was in honor of, of Yahweh's salvation, the fact that they were, they were passed over. Uh, when the wrath of God rightly came on the people in Egypt. They're set free from slavery. Now, Passover, the, the, the Passover lamb is eaten between sunset and midnight on, on Passover on that night. But it gets a little confusing for us because there's another feast called the, the Unleavened Bread Festival and actually begins at the same time. It goes from 15 to 21 Nisan inclusive. So there's a, there's a, a day of overlap that is both festivals at the same time. Um, th this led to a lot of people. Most people came for Passover. Some came toward the end for the Unleavened Bread Festival. But Jerusalem, Jerusalem looked, like, uh, looked like Orlando at spring break, right? It was just, there were so many people packed in the city. But on 22 Nisan, when, when both of the uh, festivals are over, then all the people headed back from spring break and they went back to their homes, right? So you can see in our text, look, the religious leaders want to take Jesus down when? Is it during either one of the festivals? Yes or no? No, no, they want to do it after Passover. By the way, is that what happened? Did they, did they kill Jesus after Passover and unleavened bread are over? Yes or no? No, you read ahead. No, they did, did not. Jesus is going to die on Passover. He is the lamb who is going to be sacrificed according to God's timeline, not according to human schemes. But these rejectors of Messiah want to think they're in control, so they sit around, lolos, scheming. And their big idea is to find some kind of Trojan horse that they can slip into Jesus' camp. Keep that in mind as we learn from this chapter. Now, read verses 3 through 5. While he was in Bethany, that's just east of Jerusalem, at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation at one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? This perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. The second big idea in this section is that Christians, Christian criticism develops a different target. 
There's, there's a little chart there in your notes. This might help with the cultural context, which is really important here. You see, Jewish leaders, you've got to put yourself in this milieu. Jewish leaders, they, they care about bad deeds. When you read the Gospel of Mark, it's fascinating how many times the Pharisees uh, get mad about somebody breaking the rules. Not so much scripture as their own rules, but somebody doing wrong. That's their big problem. The Romans are different. Roman thought, which is which is strong in Mark. Mark is a Roman citizen. He's writing to Roman citizens. Roman thought is all about no deeds. The ultimate sin to a Roman is unproductivity. That's the, the, the biggest no-no in Roman thought is being lazy, okay? Now, our, uh, th- these first Christians, these first believers in Jesus, they don't follow either of those paths. Look what they do. They zero in on a good deed, They snarl because other things supposedly should have been done or could have been done with this money. By the way, the Gospel of John tells us the woman who does this is Mary. She's the sister of Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead. She's an incredibly noble character, and they scold her for using this perfume on Jesus. Now, their scolding is based on a lie. Gospel of John puts it this way. Uh, Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for three? By the way, that was Judas's voice. I don't know if you know that. 300 denarii and given to the poor. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. We know from Mark's account that at least a few of the other disciples agreed with Judas, but their whole virtue signaling complaint here is just a ruse. It is a ruse to distract from their own sin. Now, this kind of fake virtue, deflect from my own sin. That kind of thinking has permeated the world, which makes sense given the massive impact of Christianity. I'd love to tell about all the great things that Christianity has brought to the world, but we've got to be honest. One of the few negatives, and this is very sad, but one of the few negatives that believers in Jesus have foisted on humanity is this idea of fake virtue to deflect from our own sin. Modern economics, prime example. Okay, let's just think about modern economics for a second. Years ago, there was a system called free trade, and it was implemented to undo the evils of of the previous system, which was a mercantilist system. Um, Mercantile systems brought manifold blessings to millions of people, but there were still weaknesses in it, and there were. It just wasn't good enough. The, the problems in mercantilism caused people of conscience, almost all of them Christians, to promote free trade instead. But free trade began to be criticized because it supposedly didn't do enough to help the poorest of workers. Free trade was good, but it wasn't good enough. So fair trade was begun, which again was started mainly by a bunch of Christians. Once fair trade was instituted, it became criticized because it supposedly isn't good enough. Too little of the money reaches the actual producers. Fair trade harms those who are not fair trade certified, which is quite frankly true. Now, whatever the merits or demerits of each of these systems, that's not the point. The point is all of these are Christian arguments. Here's here's the good news. Christians have taught the world to progress, to strive for better. But the bad news that follows is that followers of Jesus have taught the world how to waste time, energy, and money by arguing that any good thing isn't ever good enough. According to Mark 14, it was our ancestors who, like us, were followers of Jesus. They taught the world that no good deed should go unpunished. Now, let's read and see how Jesus responds to this Christian criticism, verses 6 through 9. What does Jesus think about this kind of thinking? Jesus replied, leave her alone Why are you bothering her? She's done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you don't always have me. 
She's done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial, truly. I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Verses 6 through 9 is Jesus' correction to our bad thinking. This is his primer on truly good works. By the way, that's the headline on the right side of your notes. Uh, Jesus' primer of truly good works. He does not invalidate the discussion about the best use of resources. Stewardship is important. That's always worthy of consideration. But he does stop the scolding and and the sniping. The Lord will not accept whining against other people who are trying to do good. And along the way, he gives us an education on what really makes a work good. Five aspects are enumerated by Christ here. First, truly good works, they are koloss. Uh, the Greek word we render noble, uh, noble thing, is koloss. Uh, if you've studied with me for a while, you know this is one of my favorite words of all time in any language. I have bored you to death talking about the greatness of this word that is unmatched in any translation. Uh, koloss means winsome, attractive, because of inherent integrity. Uh, in the 20th century, there was a guy, William Barclay, he was a great scholar, wonky in some ways, but really good Greek scholar, and he waxed eloquently about this word all the time, kolos. Um, on, a, on a broadcast with the BBC, Dr. Barclay said this, Latin translates this word kolos by the word anestus. What English word does that sound like? Anestus. Honesty, yeah. Um, Cicero defines that which is anestus as being such that even if its utility is taken away, even, even if its usefulness is taken away, Even if any rewards and fruits which come from it are removed, it can still be praised for its own sake. Uh, Tacitus describes the quality in Anestus as that quality which makes a person worthy of praise, even if you strip him of everything else. Barclay says, in anything that is coloss or Anestus, there is an innate and indestructible loveliness and attraction, close quote. Jesus defends truly good works despite busybody Christian criticism. And the works that he defends are noble. They, they, are, they are internally integrous and thus winsome. That's not the same as just pretend good deeds. So suppose, suppose I, I decide to hold the door for you so that you can come inside, right? Is that a nice thing to do? Sure it is. But let's suppose that as I'm holding the door... My smile gets more and more fake because inside I am grumbling because you won't get off your phone and come in the door. Do you want me to stand here all day? What are you doing? Right. Ooh, that's different, isn't it? Or, su- or suppose I let you, during rush hour, I let you come into my lane in traffic. Is that nice? Sure. But then you don't even, where are you from? You don't even wave to say thank you. <laughs> and I start grumbling about you in the car. You go back to wherever you're from. Right? Now, if, if I do those things, if I'm grumbling inside, are those integrous deeds? Are those coloss? Are those things going to stand up even if everything else in my life is stripped away? Yes or no? No, no, they won't. They're not coloss. They may be cultural conventions, personal attempts to feel good. By the way, later in the Bible, we're told that those kinds of good deeds, they're going to be burned up and receive no reward at the coming judgment seat of Christ. Jesus says Mary's deed is good because it's noble, it's coloss. Secondly, he says that truly good works do not virtue signal. Judas doesn't really care about the poor, he just found that a convenient part of his argument. He just wants to signal his supposed virtue by putting someone else down. I received a great letter, speaks really well to this problem. Uh, somebody wrote me and said, virtue signaling is a vile practice, Wayne. It ranks with pessimism in the top tier of things that destroy hope. 
It is so very tiresome to listen to people spout their supposed caring virtue, yet, and this is really brilliant, she says, in a really odd twist, it's hard to avoid doing it myself. She goes on, for example, my family has become a very diverse rainbow of people that I love. I hold them dear regardless of the color of their skin or where they're from. Yet when I'm among other more homogenous families, a, see, I'm not prejudiced, sort of ignoble boasting wants to creep in. I do not know the name for this. I do know that I do not like it. Isn't that brilliant and honest? Close quote. Jesus doesn't like it either. He sees and knows all. There is no need to worry about anyone else's opinion. Certainly no need to to worry about showing off our good deeds, which we know are actually filthy rags. Listen, if you signal virtue, it's a sure sign that you aren't virtuous. Thirdly, truly good works are focused on Jesus. Mary has prepared Jesus for burial, although it's unlikely she knows the fullness of what that means at this time. She just put 30 thousand dollars worth of perfume on his head because nothing in the world is more important than Jesus. Back in Mark chapter 12, we, uh, we heard Jesus describe the widow's gift before the Lord. He said it was the greatest gift of anything given because she gave her all to Yahweh. The next Sunday after we read that passage, our ushers found this in the church offering. Uh, Three gift envelopes from unnamed children contained precious chocolate coins and beads. We're going to purchase Manhattan. Um, Were those kids kids virtue signaling? Yes or no? Their names aren't even on the envelopes. Are they signaling their virtue? No. Are those gifts focused on Christ? Yes, they are. They put them in the offering for the Lord's church. Is is that coloss? Is that noble? Is that going to last? You bet. Yes, indeed. And we adults should go and do likewise. We should give our all before God focused on Jesus. All God's people said, amen. Speaking of giving all, the fourth point in Jesus' primer on good works is that truly good workers do what we can. Jesus says she has done what she can. There should be no false guilt for what we cannot do. This is hard. This is hard. And let's be honest about why. It's because we want to be God. Deep down, humans so much want to be God that we inadvertently think of ourselves as necessary. I am needed. I am needed to solve every problem. I am needed to right every wrong by myself. This is, this is one of the big struggles our, uh, our teams deal with when they go on a mission trip. Um, our, our temporary missionaries will go and they'll have this amazing experience and bless people and be blessed and they come back and they're just torn up oftentimes by what they couldn't do. They feel like if I don't go back and solve all of those problems I saw there, I've done nothing. And our staff has to work to get them back to Jesus' statement, do what you can. Mother Teresa seems to understand Jesus in Mark chapter 14. Um, she wrote this uh, in an interview with Malcolm Muggridge. She said, never worry about numbers. Help one person at a time, and always start with the person nearest you. Amen. Fifth, and finally, Jesus shows truly good deeds are remembered. Let's reread verse 9. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You know, there are homes, sadly many homes, where, where the parents are believers in Jesus, which is awesome. And it's, it's up to the Lord and the child what their children become. But I find it astonishing their kids don't even know who Lottie Moon is. They've never heard of Francis Schaeffer or Martin Luther or John Calvin or Augustine. 
Those people aren't even taught. I met a man one time when I was in England. I met a man in St. Albans, the the beautiful city of of St. Albans, who had lived his whole life there and had absolutely no idea that his town was named for Alban, the early Christian martyr who was killed on that site. He was a Roman soldier, was killed because he trusted in Jesus as Savior. Guy had no clue. That's heartbreaking. Just take Mother Teresa. Even the decidedly anti-Christian committee in Oslo granted her a Nobel Peace Prize, right? But when she got that Peace Prize, this guy, Christopher Hitchens, who was a famous atheist at the time, he threw an absolute fit. He hated Teresa's stance against abortion. He was also disgusted by the fact that she quoted from Mark 14, and, and she said, poverty is not going to be completely eradicated until Jesus returns, so, Teresa said, everybody needs to do what they can. Hitchens says, that attitude obviously just expands poverty. So, here's what Hitchens did. He issued a series of scathing essays against Mother Teresa, and then he made a documentary, made a video documentary that claims she was evil and her memory should be eradicated. Okay, now, it's been nearly 30 years since that documentary came out. I just want to ask you, which is more memorable in the culture at large, not just among you? Who is more remembered, Christopher Hitchens or Mother Teresa? Which one? It's really a slam dunk, isn't it? What about 100 years from now? Who, has, who is more likely to be remembered 100 years from now, Christopher Hitchens or Mother Teresa? Yeah. Remembrance is a big theme in this chapter. I want you to look for other examples in the text. Speaking of text, let's read verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. The religious leaders get their fake horse. They get their fake horse. To the priests, this must have seemed like an amazing and wonderful surprise, right? They were trying to create their own Trojan horse, and, and here, here a Trojan horse wheels right up to them ready-made. Uh, now they, they just need to find a quiet place and time that they can roll this in and set their trap. More on that when we gather on Friday for Good Friday. For now, press on to verse 12. Verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, There's the overlap I told you about. His disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out and entered the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Here the Lord's Supper is instituted for remembrance. Again, remembrance is the big idea here. And there's no memory that proves more important than this meal with Jesus. Jesus builds his people here via a spiritual rhythm. They celebrate Passover. Even though everything around them is going crazy, even though everything within their group is going crazy, they're still celebrating Passover. You probably know this, but... But spiritually focused rhythms are really important tools for life memory and life development. And that's, that brings up yet another really difficult aspect of our particular time. It's, it's awesome that my kid makes the select team. That is great. But at what point do all those weekend tournaments erode his or her capacity to function in a rhythm that memorializes Jesus and the things that matter most? 
It's important in a crisis to be wise, to trust God without testing Him. But during the COVID-19 pandemic, what did we learn? We learned that our spiritual disciplines like fellowship and worship, we can't just ignore them, right? My friend Bruce Miller wrote a book, uh, a whole book on spiritual rhythms, the need to maintain them. Bruce said this, his book, um, Your Life in Rhythm. He says, our very lives are dependent on rhythms. From the beating of our hearts to the breathing of our lungs to the need for food and sleep, our bodies function according to rhythms. If we shift our time management and life management paradigms from balance to rhythm, we can bring our lives into harmony. Using the power of rituals for preserving and enhancing our world, Jesus encourages radical lives, not balanced ones, lives following according to to his rhythm. That's one reason they celebrated Passover, to feel the rhythm in ritual. Think about think about it. They don't need to do this. Jesus has fulfilled Moses' law. They don't need to keep any legal letter in order to please God. But spiritual rhythms are really important for keeping the rhythm of following Christ. Dr. Sean McDowell is a professor at Biola University. He wrote this in a recent blog post. I really liked it. He said, worldview training must include spiritual rituals. A Christian worldview does not translate to life change without spiritual practices. Um, as my friend Jonathan Morrow noted, uh, McDowell says, in the Barna Gen Z study, we become what we do. A, a person becomes a piano player not merely through mental understanding, but through practice in order to cultivate the necessary skills to play beautiful music. In the Christian life, spiritual disciplines such as prayer, scripture reading, solitude, tithing, confession, fasting, and worship are vital to cultivating the character of Christ. Young people need opportunities to practice the Christian faith so they can become the kind of people God's designed them to be. We can't just think our way into, into becoming virtuous people. We need to practice certain rituals that help form our desires, love, and character. Amen. Jesus, Jesus planned the score. He set the tempo. He is working out a composition that is created so everybody can sing along. His, his predictive prophecy here proves his providence, right? Jesus is the master conductor. That's why they found everything just as he said. In, in my Bible... I wrote this in the margin next to verse 16. I wrote, true remembrance is based on obeying Jesus' commands, practicing his disciplines, following his rhythm. Amen? All right, now read verse uh, 17. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. By reclining and eating... Um, in, in those days in the Roman world, you, you sat at a three-sided set of tables called a triclinium, and everybody, everybody leaned on their, on their left hand, and, and you ate with your right hand, and so you just kind of leaned. There were pillows and things, and it was really a very comfortable way to have a meal. So they're reclining around like a bunch of dominoes that are partially falling over. So they're reclining and eating, and he says, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they begin to be distressed and said to him one by one, surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Jesus edifies people through ritual, and he also builds his people through relationships. Notice how these big ideas work together. Ritual, relationship, rhythm, redeemed community. They're reclining and eating together. Pretty soon they're going to go out singing a hymn together. Dr. McDowell picked up on this as well. Same blog, he wrote this. Worldview training must occur in relationships. 
After working with young people for over two decades, I am convinced the Christian worldview is most effectively developed in relationship. And here he gives a great example. He says, since my dad grew up with a father who was the town drunk, the idea of a heavenly father never appealed to him. The shift in his worldview began as he studied scripture and learned about God's loving character, but it was solidified when he developed healthy relationships with men who relationally modeled fatherhood to him. The point is not that we need to teach young people less biblical truth. We need more. We must give young people reasons for the faith and help them think Christianly about all of life. But if we want them to become virtuous Christians, we must also help them develop healthy relationships with the rituals to practice their faith. Well said. Amen. Relationships. That's what this part of Mark 14 is all about. And Leonardo da Vinci, of all people, seems to have grasped this. Look at his painting, his famous painting, uh, The Last Supper. This painting is full of information about relationships with Jesus and his community. No, the Dan Brown novels are nonsense, okay? But there are a few legitimate aspects of things that are, that are carefully put into this painting. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but da Vinci actually hammered a nail in the wall where he was doing this fresco. Actually, he didn't use fresco-type paint, which is why it's been such a pain to keep going. Anyway, he, he hammered a nail in the wall, and he stretched out lines. I wanted you to remember this, so I put a copy of this in your, in your bulletin, actually. Uh, he stretched out lines so that everything in the painting would relate to Jesus. Everything, the focal point of the painting is the face of the Lord Jesus. He wanted everything to, to draw to and center on the Christ. Uh, da Vinci knew that nobody ate like this at a flat table in the classical world. He knew they ate in a, in a triclinium, but, but he stretched them all out so he could emphasize in this, in this more stiff environment their very unstiff conversation. He wanted to show how, look at all the movement, look at the relationships together, the groupings of people in relationship. Speaking of relating, the painting can also be interpreted using the Fibonacci series. Did you know this? Fibonacci sequences where each number is the sum of the two preceding. So it's, it's 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13. Um, and it, it's like the, um, the Fibonacci series is the, is the golden mean of, of relational harmony in nature. So a pine cone, a per, when you look at a pine cone and say, ooh, that one's perfect, you may not know it, but what you're commenting on is that it is Fibonacci sequence all the way down of the, of the points on the pine cone. Uh, there are certain computer algorithms that are very beautiful because they, they are a Fibonacci sequence. They, they move in that form. So look at da Vinci's uh, depiction of Mark 14. What does he paint? He, he has one table, very bold and bright in our view. He has one Lord who is set aside the center of everything. Got two side walls. He's got three windows, five groupings of figures, eight panels on the walls, 13 individual figures. Now, I don't know if da Vinci understood Fibonacci numbers or if this was just reflexive for him, but I do know that he worked very hard to capture the perfection of the relational way that Jesus builds his people. Now, one last note on relationships. Jesus speaks here of the horror for the one who refuses redeemed community. Uh, yet another example of predictive prophecy, Jesus prophesies his betrayal. He builds on the Old Testament, assuring all of us that he is going to be betrayed just as the prophets had promised. And Jesus notes a very negative kind of remembrance. Judas will never be forgotten. 
This, this man who was offered an eternal relationship with God settled for silver instead. Um, in the painting, the spilled salt uh, very likely implies that loss. Um, Judas was like Jesus' description way back in the Sermon on the Mount. The salt that has lost its flavor, false salt, it, it's worthless, it's good for nothing but throwing out in the roadway and being trampled under feet. Thank goodness we're never like that. We never act like Judas. I mean, none of us would trade a life of rhythm and relationship with God and his people. We wouldn't be too busy making money to build relationships. That's absurd. We never let social stuff crowd out our spiritual ritual. Or maybe we do. All right, leaving that horrible conviction, let's go to the last part of the text. Uh, verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread, he blessed and broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Here Jesus leads the first Christian communion. The bread is blessed and broken, during which Jesus says, This is his body. Jesus is setting up an important memory tool. This is all about remembrance. Taking the bread in honor of his body, which is given for people. The, the cup, likewise, is a tool for remembering Jesus. It's a covenant bond, just, just like blood was the covenant bond in a whole series of Old Testament covenants. Remember, the passage is shot through with remembrance. And right here, at the very first Christian communion, we see two great reminders that we're to keep about Jesus. We take this bread and we take this cup in memorial of Jesus. He gave his body. He gave his blood to pay our sin, and then he rose from the grave so that if anybody trusts him, they have everlasting life in Jesus. All God's people said, but there's more. A memorial should cause a person to live differently now. If you've ever visited the uh, USS Arizona Memorial, um, two million people a year go there. How many of you have ever been to the Arizona? Okay, quite a few. Um, Everyone I've ever talked to, when they come out of there, they say that they're very moved. The most regular comment that I've been told is, wow, I want to live my life less selfishly. I want to be more like these people who gave their lives. That's what a memorial does. And in a deeper and even longer lasting way, that's what we do when we come to this memorial, this Lord's Supper. We, de we declare our desire to do good, to live our life differently in remembrance of Jesus. Let's prepare for that in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for me. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Father, we live with, uh, we live with a fear of doing good. And not, not the healthy fear that we need to learn, like your, your primer on, on what things are really good. That's fine. We live with a fear because we worry about human complaints. And I'm embarrassed by it, and I want to say I'm sorry. I thank you for the forgiveness that Jesus provides. I pray for every one of us that we can do good with joyful, reckless abandon. And we do it because of our remembrance of you. Yes, you are the ultimate example of no good deed unpunished. But you fooled all the Trojan horses by rising from the dead. And you grant everlasting life to anybody who trusts you. And that changes everything. Speaking of change, Lord, there are people surely studying with us here and around the world who are 
who are not believers in Jesus. And I beg you to draw them to you right now. Friend, listen, you, you may be very nice. You may be very humanly good. But scripturally, you're separated from God because you're a sinner. Just like me. Just like every human. And Jesus loves you so much that he, the God-man, really did willingly give up his life. He died on that cross, undeniable truth that he rose from the dead. And if you will trust him for salvation and stop trusting yourself or anything else, he grants you eternal life, a relationship with God the Father forever. And he gives you the chance to live differently as a memorial. If you've never done so, trust Jesus right now. There's no hocus pocus. It's just an honest relationship where you say, I believe. I receive Jesus as my Savior. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. If you're here in the auditorium, if you're online with us, make sure you say something to your host. Good for you. Amen. Father, I pray for all these believers in Jesus Christ, new and old, that we will remember. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to... Uh, we're going to take the Lord's table. For those who are believers in Jesus, um, in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand up and to exit your row to the right, and we'll come row by row and, uh, and grab these. There is a bread and a cup, and we're going to take these in remembrance of Jesus once everybody's served. So let's worship together. Let's remember in, in singing as we come and get the bread and the cup. Please stand and come to your right. Thank you.
lump of, and let you at home, you probably get really nice bread, but um, here, I mean, let's not kid ourselves, this stuff's awful, um, but but it's beautiful, I mean, it's absolutely wonderful, our, our annual theme this year is, is wonder, trying desperately to get our eyes onto what is true and what is wonderful, and, and that's what this bread, they even named a whole bread company after it, uh, wonder, but no, I'm kidding, the, um, but this this bread is a wonder and and we take it in remembrance of Jesus and Jesus took the cup he said this is my blood poured out for you the blood of the covenant covenant a relationship it's not ritual to please God it's a it's a, it's a ritual to enjoy the God who's already pleased because of this. Amen? Let's take in remembrance of Jesus. Almighty God, we praise you and we thank you for this opportunity to take the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen. 